It's the 25th of February, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You know, there are a lot of problems running around these days. I know, problems? What? We're talking about problems? You know, we're back to having a lot of respiratory infections since no one's wearing a mask. That's a problem. Air pollution's a problem, especially if you've got psoriasis. Where you live could be a problem. How you live, that's definitely a problem. With all these problems, why are we having a podcast? Because we've got the solutions, right, here at Room Now. Moreover, at Room Now Live, we really have the solutions. More on that later. Let's begin with a report about diagnostic delays in psoriatic arthritis. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this data, but it's been running around for a while. It seems like the data is that it takes, what, seven to 10 years to make a diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis or spondyloarthritis. Um, a new systematic review says that that might be a little bit better, but not a lot better. So in this particular systematic review says that the range in diagnostic delays was anywhere from 0.67 uh, to eight years and that 75% of all reports showed that this range was really like two to six years. So maybe there's some improvement here, but still it's a significant amount. A lot of damage is done. Only about one third had a median delay of about two years. Uh, things that might have factored into um, either a delay or an earlier diagnosis, gender or family history, not so much, not factors here. There still needs to be strategies on how to better diagnose patients with spondyloarthritis. Uh, lupus mortality was a subject of um, review, and in this particular study, looked at um, population in Mexico and followed them over a long period of time. Specifically, they looked at almost 12,000 deaths amongst lupus patients, compared that to the non-lupus population. And what they showed was that from, uh, their study was 1998 to 2017. From 1998 on, lupus deaths almost doubled. Um, but, and while it sounds like, gee, that's a bad stat and it was going up and up and up, turns out that most of the doubling and the significant rise in mortality rates was really seen between 1998 to 2009. Um, from 2009 to 2013, it kind of went down a little bit. And from 2013, it kind of went up a little bit in a non-significant matter. So where we are, at least in 2017, much higher rate. You know, I assume that the plateauing, leveling might well have something to do with therapies being introduced, new paradigms being established, more people working in lupus. Um, so while this could be viewed as negative data, I kind of think it's uh, more positive. We've talked about lupus mortality rates showing this sort of pattern in, in the past. Um, psoriasis is something we see and we are concerned about it because we get psoriatic arthritis from it. A recent single center uh, study of almost a thousand patients with plaque psoriasis, um, followed them over, I think it was a three-year period, looked at air pollutants um, and measured many of them and showed that in almost 40% of uh, the psoriasis patients who had a flare of their psoriasis, that that was associated with a significant increase in air pollutant concentration in the 60 days prior to the psoriasis flare. 
We've shown air pollution as a contributory factor to the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. Therefore, I don't think it's a surprise that air pollution could be a role, one of those environmental triggers. And when, you know, when we're trying to figure out how do you get from no risk to a preclinical disease state to actually having the disease, well, we talked about preclinical RA. Is not preclinical psoriatic arthritis maybe psoriasis? And maybe would not those flare rates being due to environmental triggers, the best known that we have is, of course, um, smoking and then obesity and what that may entail. Um, but air pollutants has been, has been shown very well by Lars Klariskog and other people in, uh, in Sweden and Scandinavian countries really show that that's a, a significant fa- risk factor. Um, maybe if I was an at-risk individual, first-degree relative, and I was CCP positive, I'd be looking at my air pollution and where I lived. That's not what this study was about, but I think you can make those leaps if you're trying to advise your patients. Kawasaki's disease is back in the news in the last year or two, especially with the, um, the multi-system uh, inflammatory disease of children, MISC disease that uh, is a consequence of COVID. Um, so what do we have here? We have MISC coming about in children who've been infected with COVID, right? And what is unique about MISC? It looks a lot like Kawasaki's. The difference being Kawasaki's being much younger, um, you know, elementary school. And these MISC kids tend to be older, almost in adolescence. Well, this particular study of uh, 53,000 kids in Korea, looked at the association between Kawasaki's disease and population, um, well, population-based data looking at infections. And what they did show was that um, there was a significant increase in respiratory infection, infections, specifically rhinovirus, RSV, uh, respiratory syncytial virus, and varicella in the one to three months prior to Kawasaki outbreaks. Now, there is a body of literature about a potential infectious stimulus and trigger to Kawasaki's. This would support that. But it seems to be even more relevant in the face of what we now have been living with this new disease, MISC, being triggered by the, um, the alpha virus, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So again, I think it's a nice story. It might explain um, seasonal variations in disease as well. Uh, Other data coming from a Korean analysis basically looks at what we kind of know about PPIs and COX-2 inhibitors, especially in the elderly. Um, Do they really um, cause GI bleeding and perforation? A study of 92,000 people treated with either um, PPIs or uh, or COX-2s as prophylaxis, PPIs, prophylaxis, or COX-2 showed that both of these were associated with a significant reduction in um, uh, bleeding and perforation, uh, PPI 64% reduction, uh, um, COX-2 74% reduced risk, uh, and you'd expect that, right? We're, we're hoping for that. What we've seen in other studies was also mirrored here that COX-2 uh, efficacy and prevention was roughly equal to that of using a PPI in someone with a non-selective, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Um, like naproxen, diclofenac, uh, et cetera. And then lastly, H2 blockers, Tagamet, Zantac, those things like that, really does not reduce the risk of perforation and bleeds. 
Uh, a cohort study, a large cohort study, eh, modest cohort study, 144 lupus patients from the slick cohort looked at the number who actually had um, depression. And what they did was they used a, an index score and showed that as much as 61% of patients actually had scores within the depression range over a four-year period. Um, seems high to me, but if you're following a, you know, an active lupus cohort, maybe it's not, and maybe not over a four-year period, that um, there was in this study an inconsistent association between disease activity and depression uh, in multivariate analyses, so meaning sometimes it was there and sometimes it wasn't. But I think this is something that we probably need to pay attention to in our patients with lupus. Um, what I really spend a lot of time on and worrying about is the diagnosis of neuropsychiatric lupus, what we used to call lupus cerebritis. I, I'm a big fan of this kind of research. Um, and Chandra Mohan, who used to be at uh, UT Southwestern, did a nice study looking at CSF, cerebral spinal fluid aptamers. These are short nucleic acid sequences that could be used to, um, these analyses can be used to discover proteins that might be uh, discriminatory or enriched in patients with neuropsychiatric lupus. So what they did was they looked at a fairly large cohort of neuropsychiatric patients uh, and CSF samples, and they showed that the ones, these proteins that were most discriminatory through this discovery process were CSF lipocalin 2, um, MCSF, macrophage colony stimulating factor, um, and IgM and complement C3. Complement C3 being associated with acute confusional states. These are novel proteins that have not previously been described as being discriminatory in lupus. So I like this kind of discovery. It needs to be looked at. The first one, CSF lipocalin 2, is also called NGAL, neutrophil-associated um, gelatinase um, lipocalin. And you might remember many, I don't know, a few years ago, that was a plenary session at the ACR showing that NGAL or this gelatin, neutrophil gelatinase, you know, urinary biomarker was very predictive of lupus nephritis. Uh, it has shown up as a biomarker. It's an oncogene. It's got a lot of different functions. It's involved in inhibition of the innate immune response. It's not unreasonable that this could very well be a biomarker and it really does need to be looked at. MCSF, I'm not sure why this um, colony stimulating factor for that would cause a development of monocytes would be present in the CSF. Nonetheless, interesting. So anyway, something to think about, especially if you're into, um, you know, guys like John Hanley and others are really into um, more studies in this area. Uh, uh, a study of scleroderma patients looking at intestinal transit and delayed gastric emptying. These are um, 97 systemic sclerosis patients who underwent whole gut scintigraphy. Um, whole gut scintigraphy is a new, new way, a better way of actually looking at uh, gastric transit times and also colon transit times. And they found in these patients who are having GI symptoms that 35% had evidence of gastroparesis fairly high number, don't you think? Um, and, um, and that such patients with gastroparesis also had um, delayed emptying or gastric or colon transit times, meaning the problem being um, found in the upper um, uh, GI tract is really present maybe throughout the GI tract. This could be a new and better way of evaluating patients with scleroderma who are having GI symptoms.
So I've seen studies in the past that looked at environmental risks for arthritis and causes of arthritis. An interesting study, a meta-analysis by Glenn Hazelwood and colleagues um, looked at, through meta-analysis, uh, 54 studies, 54 articles, 11 studies that looked at where you live as a risk factor for developing rheumatoid arthritis. So we're looking at incident cases of RA. We're comparing uh, urban populations to those who live in rural or remote populations. And um, I think the authors were surprised to find that there was no association between where you live and a future risk of developing RA. However, in that study, or in those studies that they reviewed, they did show that where you live does have a lot to do with how you're treated once you have the disease, that, that uh, being in remote or uh, rural environments tends to create bar barriers to care uh, and may increase the consequences of that in those who develop disease. So this goes down to is one of those categories under disparities um, in care, this one being based on where you live. Another interesting study about the risk of developing arthritis, this was an MMWR study, the CDC study, looked at developing arthritis, not RA, but arthritis overall, um, and they looked at social risk factors. Um, we know other risk factors for arthritis and, and uh, like smoking, etc., but in this case, they looked at social risk factors defined as either identifying, and this is through surveys of the BRFSS survey system, um, and they specifically asked about food insecurity, housing insecurity, financial insecurity, unsafe neighborhoods, and access to health care. Those are what they call social risk factors. When they compared people who had none of these to those who had four or more of these, there was double the risk of developing arthritis. Moreover, that population also had a two to threefold risk of having severe joint pain, limitations of usual activities, work activities, and social activities. These same um, uh, um, social risk factors, when you have multiple of them, also increases other health disorders. So it's not just arthritis, but also depression, MI, CVA, asthma, COPD, and multimorbidity. These are modifiable, though. Isn't that interesting? Um, a DOA study, I had to publish it. I loved that, that album, DOA. I'm really dating myself here. Positive results from the DOA study. DOA, deloxetine and osteoarthritis. This was a study of 111 patients, and it showed, much to my surprise, that deloxetine may very well work at knee pain in those patients who had knee pain uh, from advanced OA. Now, these 111 patients, there's a lot of red flags in the study, by the way. I liked it. I reported it. Number one, it's listed as a pragmatic study. When you see pragmatic in the title, that's either a gigantic excuse or really novel thinking. You should go in with a, a hairy eyeball on that one. Open label, almost useless, right? Eight-week trial, not long enough. 111 patients, not big enough. The outcomes... If you got deloxetine versus not getting deloxetine, 44% responses versus zero response. 44 to zero, I'm not liking those results. Um, and it's an, only an eight-week study um, comparing you know, deloxetine to nothing, which means just usual care. Yeah, when you look at the 
um, where it comes from. It's, uh, you know, it's the Netherlands. They do great research, but it's a bunch of orthopedists and rehab docs. So shame on me for reporting this. You know, other reports are basically kind of, even though Doxetine's approved for use in chronic pain, it, you know, hasn't fared well in, in after its approval in the populace and in meta-analyses and, and whatnot. So, uh, and that's been my experience. I mean, I give it with great hope. I'm often disappointed in the results. In this particular study, they looked at knee OA and hip OA patients who were near um, on the verge of getting on the wait list for knee and hip replacements, respectively. It worked in knee, but not hip. Another red flag. My apologies for covering this, but I thought it was interesting when I started out. Medscape reported its 2022 physician burnout report. Physician burnout, isn't that like, you know, people who grow their hair, move to Austin, Seattle, and throw away their shoes? No, we're talking about doctors. And um, this study, which they do every year, you know, I report this because rheumatology has kind of been high on the list. In 2018, we were really low on the list at 38%. Last year, we were like second or third on the list with 50% of rheumatologists being uh, categorized as burnt out meaning that they were on the verge of leaving uh, rheumatology. This year's survey, more patients, more physicians, 13,029 specialties. Um, Physician burnout has gone um, up from 42% overall to 47% this year. Rheumatology, which was like second last year, has now dropped to 10th, going from 50 to 46%. We're tied with three other people. Look at the report if you want to see where you stand and whether you're about to throw away your shoes and move to Austin. Um, The top three in the list as far as burnout this year, emergency medicine had a big surge. They were like 40-something, went up to 60%. What are they complaining about? They work two days and get paid 300,000 for doing nothing. Wait, I shouldn't talk that way about my colleagues. Critical care and OBGYNs. Um, Why do we burn out? Uh, You know, the paperwork, Um, Lack of respect, lack of pay, those are usually um, high on the list. Um, I'm going to end with two things. Um, NFL study on uh, COVID. I thought that was interesting. That's an MMWR report that came out yesterday that we reported today. Um, As you know, the NFL used to do weekly testing testing of people who um, who were vaccinated. And almost everybody's vaccinated in the NFL, although the players don't have to be. All NFL employees have to be and boosted as well. And then vaccination numbers are really good there. Um, but And then if you're not vaccinated, you get daily testing by PCR at the NFL. Well, they changed things recently as far as what happens if you test positive. In this particular report, a study of 173 NFL um, players and uh, I guess people who work for that, they showed that when they did t- daily testing, so you got test positive, you went into isolation for five days, you were tested for five days, and then where were you on day six? Turns out uh, after five days of isolation, only about half the group is now test negative. And again, these people who are test positive with no symptoms. So what do they say? There was a CDC says. The CDC uh, and MWR says that... Even if you get released because you have no symptoms and are afibrile at that point, you still need to wear a mask for a total of at least 10 days. 88% were um, test negative. 88, 89% were test negative at 10 days. So 
Um, if you release it five days, meaning after five days isolation and release it six day, they still got to go and wear a mask. That would be the recommendation. We have a, um, um, a call-in message from one of the viewers. Um, this is Dr. Um, Waliata uh, from Idaho. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Dr. Kush. My name is Ananda Waladiyada. I am a rheumatologist uh, from Idaho. I have a question regarding TNF agents uh, in patients with uh, rheumatoid lung disease. Uh, there are uh, some studies, uh, some of them retrospective, uh, that indicate that there has been worsening of rheumatoid lung disease with TNF agents. Uh, I would like to know your opinion on this and if uh, you discontinue TNF agents in patients with rheumatoid lung disease or if you use them at all in this situation or this is something that uh, is uh, not correct. Um, I appreciate the comment on this thing. All right, Ananda, thank you very much for that interesting question. This does come up. Um, the association between TNF inhibitor use and number one, the onset of lung disease is a very loose one at best. Think about it this way. Who gets rheumatoid lung, interstitial lung disease, RA? Bad patients, severe RA. Who gets TNF inhibitors in RA? Severe RA. So there is this casual association not borne out by multiple studies. If this is true, there would be very good documentation that um, if it's incidentally found, a patient on TNF inhibitor and they develop ILD under your nose, will they get worse? Or is there evidence of giving a TNF inhibitor will make them worse? And there's very little to no evidence to suggest that. So I think this is a casual association. I think you have to double, if that, if that therapy is working great for their RA, you need to consider other therapies, do you not? Um, last year at Room Now Live, Dr. Jeff Sparks gave a fabulous lecture. It's in the show notes if you want to click on it and see his 40-minute um, YouTube lecture from Room Now Live. Um, Jeff goes through the drugs that you would use for um, problematic RAILD, including um, nintendinib and where it may uh, uh, land, potential value of mycophenolate and or rituximab. Uh, especially in seropositive patients. Um, and then that he can he feels good about using a lot of other therapies, including hydroxychloroquine. He says if he has an option, he probably would stop the TNF inhibitor, mainly because there are too many unknowns, not because there's, it's been, there's indictful evidence. Um, if the drug's working well in someone where ILD is discovered, he continues it. But look at his lecture and listen to his lecture and see what you think. It's available, I think, in podcast form as well, but I have the link for the, um, the video from Room Now Live. Speaking of Room Now Live, it's coming up in but a few weeks. I strongly urge you to attend. Um, it's going to be a great um, virtual meeting um, and live meeting for those. We're looking to have about 100 to 150 people uh, attend live. It's not too late. Um, the faculty is just stellar here. I mean, um, besides Dr. Kavanaugh and myself, uh, Caleb Mishu, Ernie Choi from um, England, Ronan Kavanaugh, Joan Merrill, Peter Lipsky, um, Bruce Kirkham, uh, um, really well known in the psoriasis world, Alexis Agdi, Peter Nash, Jose Sher, Philip Meese, Pamela Weiss, um, 
dermatologists uh, Bruce Strober and Ken Gordon, Joseph Marola, a room um, derm guy, John Hausman, Tahina Niochi, and Phil Meese, uh, Janet Pope, uh, Karen Kostenbatter, and Elena Mayasadova. I mean, my goodness, it's a powerhouse faculty. Um, just check out the, um, the, the program. I think you'll be impressed. So, again, you can go to roomnow.live if you'd like to register. That's it for this week. You can find the notes on these uh, particular uh, citations we talked about in the show notes. And we'll talk to you next week on the podcast.